Greetings. Welcome to In Conversation with Trevor, brought to you by Heart and Soul Broadcasting Services. I go beyond the headlines and beyond the sensational. Today I'm in conversation with Mo Ibrahim, the founder and chairman of the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. Enjoy this truly motivating conversation. Ibrahim, I finally pinned you, pinned you down. Where do I find you, Mo? Where are you? <laughs> at the moment, I'm, I'm in my office in London, and uh, I'm always at your disposal, uh, Trevor. You know that. Absolutely, Mo. Thank you so much. Mo, you, you have done so many things, but I thought let's start with uh, uh, heavy lifting. You decided in 2006 that you would establish the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. Walk us through, Mo, what your thinking was. We, you've just come out of uh, being an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur. We're going to talk about that later on. But I, at the moment, you, you, you so 20, 2006, you decide, I want to form the Mo Ibrahim Foundation. What does your thinking? What is it that you wanted to, to do? Uh, very simple, actually. I mean, uh, uh, I have I've been in business for a number of years. I established uh, MSI, Mobile System International, very successful, and we made a lot of money. We decided to invest this money in Africa and develop Celtel to introduce mobile phones, millions of Sahara Africa. And that was also proved to be a great success beyond our expectations. And uh, in 2006, I found that I made a lot of money. And I have never uh, aspired, to be honest, uh, to be a businessman. Uh, I was brought up as a socialist, as a young socialist. And I always, you know, thought suspiciously of business people. And here I am, I found myself a businessman. And uh, so I really decided that this money or most of it, I should really uh, give it back uh, to Africa. Uh, Africa, where we made money, and Africa, where I come from. So it is where I'm going to give uh, my money. And that I follow literally. I don't do anything outside Africa. Uh, so now, what do you do? That is, you know, in the previous conversation you mentioned it may be easier to make money than spend it. Yeah, and you, 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 you know, you think, okay, shall I take some, you know, baby's milk or blankets to uh, refugees, uh, displaced, displaced people? Shall I uh, do this or? But you know. I thought these are all aspirants. It doesn't deal with our main issues in Africa because mm. Africans should not be poor. This is a fact. We should not be mm. poor. We have mm. resources. We have a huge continent, and we should not be poor. And the uh, uh, question of charity, of, you know, is nice. I always thank people who are charitable, uh, but we don't need to wait for charity. So mm. 
why why are we poor? That is mm. the why are we poor? Mm. I thought we are poor because we have of course had history of slavery and colonialism and cold war and stuff like that. But also we shot our sources of wood. We mismanaged our resources. We mismanaged our uh, 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 material resources and our human resources. And that is, is a huge mistake. What we need in Africa is better governance. We need to really develop our resources in a proper way for our benefit. Don't give it away for, for being lots of bribes and Ferraris or whatever. And again, development of our people. That's why I decided to really focus in dealing with that issue, how to improve the lives of our people in Africa through better governance and better leadership. So Mo, you, you, you've you been very laser focused in, in terms of uh, uh, defining what governance is and what are the key issues that you're going you you're going to focus on just walk us through more uh, for you the things that you thought were important to bring about good governance and therefore prosperity on the continent right uh, trevor is not there's no no difficulty here there's no magic about it. it's so simple Go good governance is about delivery of that basket of public good to your citizen you come to power as a government to serve the people, not for the people to serve you. And you need as a government to deliver. This, this is a straightforward because we don't want to evaluate speeches, uh, party political programs, uh, broken promises, or what has been done, what has been delivered. That is a measure of governance. And this basket of goods is very simple. What people need, people need safety and security. That is very important. People need economic development. They need jobs. They need better education. They need better health. They need equality. Uh, no marginalization of, of, of other communities. Uh, women's rights. All these things are del deliverable, which needed to be delivered to the people. And we said that is governance and we have to go and measure it and present it to the African people so they understand what's going on. Mm. Well, I like the fact that you've added, uh, I saw, I was reading a report, your 2020 report more, where you've added uh, uh, four uh, uh, dimensions, which is uh, uh, participation, rights and inclusion, security, uh, rule of law, Human development and also including digital rights. I mean that that you're keeping in 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 tandem with what's happening uh, as far as the technology space is concerned. This is true. I mean, we started the index some 14, 15 years ago, but we are time and for example, now environment is important. It came at the top of our agenda now with climate change, etc. So we're starting now this year to also measure. Uh, the sustainable environment. Are, mm. are we killing our environment or are we destroying it? Uh, so we have to keep uh, moving, of course. 
And then in two, in, you then created the um, Ibrahim Index uh, of African Governance. And in 2007, you initiated the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Achievement in African Leadership, where you would offer $5 million uh, to an African head of state, state who achieved the, the governance in, uh, indicators as you outlined, but also demo democratically transferred power to their successor. When you when you look at at, at, at that, it was was that the uh, the wisest use of uh, Mo Ibrahim's money? I think I think so. I think so. We 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 had very wide range discussions before we launched this. Uh, I went to talk to maybe fifty or sixty very serious leaders about the issue of leadership in Africa. I talked to people like Mandela. I talked to people like Kofi Annan, and we had lengthy discussion uh, with uh, Becky, with uh, a lot of people, and uh, and also some Europeans whom I respect, uh, some good people. And uh, leadership is very important. It is very important uh, to help us to move forward. And uh, we have a number of problems here. First. We have the 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 safe transition yeah. of power has always been a problem. How mm. to safely transfer the uh, uh, the power, and uh, we also have the fact that good leaders of Africa are never recognized. Mm. That may come as a surprise to you, uh, a man who lived in. South Africa and, and Zimbabwe because Nelson Mandela is one of the most celebrated leaders. Yeah. But that, that's only Mandela. Mm. Mm. Nobody knows about Mandela. Uh, look, I was giving a lecture at London School of Economy, uh, of Economies, uh, a few years ago for the postgraduate. There was about 200, 250 people in the room, including some 70, 80 Africans. This this is the elite of the elite, you know, this is the young people who are going to want to run countries and companies, etc. And I was debating with them the issue of the leadership. And mm -hmm. some were challenging me and say, oh, why are you doing that? I said, listen, guys, we have a lot of good leaders in Africa. The word out in the street that Africa is full of dictators, full of criminals, and uh, you know, and we need to really balance discussion there. We are the first to condemn the bad guys, but we need to recognize the good guys as well. Yeah. Then I challenge those guys. I said, okay. Who knows Mobutu? Raise your hand. Everybody raise their hand. <laughs> Uh, who knows Mugabe? Raise your hand. Everybody knows Mugabe. Idi Amin. Everybody knows Idi Amin. Uh, Omar al-Bashir. Everybody knows Omar al-Bashir. I said, okay. Joachim uh, Shisano. You looked at each other. Festus Mohai. Who? Festus Mohai. Nobody. Uh, I went through the list. Bohama. Nobody mm. knows and it was, I said, excuse me, really, I, I must say, shame on you. Oh. You, you think you are intellectuals, you think you are, the, you, you know, and especially the African guys here. 
And you don't know our good guys, and you only know the bad guys, what legacy are we giving to our young people? Look, Trevor, if you are a good leader, when you finish your term, you finish with clean hands. Yeah. No blood, no dirty money. Then you have nowhere to go. What do you do? Some leaders could not find a place or an apartment to rent in the capital they wrote. Mm. Chris Kawinda, you know Chris Kawinda? Some engineers have to offer his house to him, mm. but there's no place to go. It, it is just incredible. Uh, John, mm. you know, even Nareri has nowhere to go. Mm. And uh, this is a problem. When uh, President Bereas of, of, of Cabo Verde lost his first election, he was president, and, and he went to go and stay with his mother. He took his kids, went to stay with, in the apartment of his mother. Because when, if you are an European or American leader, when you finish, the board of any uh, bank, global fund is open for you. You start to earn millions. Yeah? People make money after politics. Oh, yeah. Okay? In our case, our good guys have nowhere to go. And we think this is a bad thing because we need the good presidents to be recognized. We need to shine them and put them out there for the world to know we have good people, for our kids to know we have good people. They need to have role models. And we need to present those role models for them. And we need to go as leaders, then not to worry about earning money, but go now and work in civil society. They form their own foundations. They go on the international stage and they put Africa case forward. That is wonderful. So this money is, is peanuts. It, what produces is, is a wonderful effect. People know who is Fistas Mukhai, and he is invited by the UN to do this. He invited by European to do People that, you know, Ellen Sirleaf, she is all over the place doing a lot of things. People recognize those leaders and respect those leaders, and that changed the picture of Africa. And then our daughters look at Ellen and say, oh, I want to be like that. Yeah, but but more, are you not doing what the citizens and should be doing to pressure their governments to put in constitutions that allows a leader who steps uh, out of power some level of comfort? I think South Africa has provided a, a good example in, in that regard. Should you not rather be tackling that kind of uh, 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 stuff uh, uh, more? Please push back. Yeah, that's wonderful. If it happens, then there's no need for the price. But because right. we have the price, because we have no alternative. Yeah. And if if there is something in place to honor and recognize good leaders, invited by their own citizens, we'll stand back. So the, the, just run through um, the, the some of the prize winners uh, more. Um, good Joachim Chisan, what a man. I mean, I, I, I meet him on the plane, uh, wherever you meet him, he's talking about his cattle and uh, his farming. Um, of course, the late Nelson Mandela, Festus Mohai, again, great guy. I've, I've flown with him a number of times. Hafi Pe, uh, 
Munye Pohambe, great guy. Ellen Johnson, very um, uh, um, uh, illustrious person. Then Mohammed Isofo. T- talk to me about those and what to, what you've learned from those those leaders, uh, more. Those those are uh, wonderful people uh, who came to power and really did unexpected things. You know, when Shisano came to power after the uh, victory of uh, 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 Free Libo, and uh, uh, now he decided to introduce multi-party democracy. And there was a great opposition for that within the movement. And he went against the majority uh, opinion of the people in the movement who said, we came to power, we liberated you, we own you. And you have a lot of liberation movement in the region who are doing that. Let, let me not name anybody now. But went against the trend, opened the country for uh, 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 multi-party democracy. And really, he moved forward with, with, with what... Christos Mukhai followed on that after that great man, Masiri. Mm. I think Masiri was one of the most wonderful leaders we ever had uh, in Africa. I mean, he's a wonderful man. And Christos Mukhai followed after Masiri. He was a student of Masiri. He was nurtured by Masiri. And those guys moved Botswana, you know, from low-income country to middle-income country is the only country in Africa where the natural resource was completely used for the benefit of the people. You cannot name any other African countries, unfortunately. And you cannot mention anybody else. This is the only guy who did it for the benefit of the own people. And we say, oh, thank you, Mr. President. That is wonderful. And we need you now to go and tell the kids in the schools how you did it, why you did it, inspire people. And yeah. that is what, you know, you look at all, all these people, the, the way they acted, the way uh, we're, we're really exemplary and we salute them. We, Trevor, we need our heroes. Absolutely. You know what, more? What I found with the with the with the people that have that you've given this prize for me, the common denominator has been humility. Uh, is, is that the sense that you get? I mean, dealing with these people, meeting them, they are down to earth. Is that is that true? Absolutely. All the great people, by the way, all mm. the great people are the most humble people. I tell you, yeah. smallest thing. Mm. Yeah. I, I, we uh, we have our annual event every year, which I hope you join us. Uh, uh, this uh, will be in the last weekend of April. So put it okay. in your It's a whole weekend of governance and somewhere in Africa, we move it every year. And in that particular year, I think we're celebrating it in Alexandria in Egypt. And uh, we were also honoring the winner at that time who's, uh, who was Festus Mukhai. And I was sitting in the terrace with President Masiri. And uh, we're talking about the event later in the evening and about Festus Mukhai and what happened. And then I talked to him about his time in government because he has an amazing story. I mean, uh, there's no time in the program to tell you. But I asked him one question. I said, Mr. President, 
You have been president for some time in, in, in a very crucial time in Botswana. Looking back over all these years, what is the best decision you have made? Mercedes was always quiet and careful, and so he waited two minutes. I said, I think the best decision I ever made was, was to mentor Festus. Oh, wow. Imagine this great man saying, the best thing I ever had is to help the guy who came after me. Yeah. You never, wow. you can never have a European leader, an American leader. You can never have a leader saying that. That is the great uh, uh, Masiri. So, Mo, in uh, 2020, there was no winner of the African prize. What, what does that mean? Excellence in leadership, unfortunately, is, is, is a rare commodity. And uh, I've been asked that question mainly by European and American journalists uh, who sometimes smugly, sometimes uh, sarcastic, will always say, oh, you guys don't have, all your leaders are awful. You know what they want. And I have one answer to them and say, look, guys, okay, I have no winner this year, but can you name to me a European leader who deserves this prize and will give it to him? And they stop for a minute and then they start laughing. <laughs> because, you know, it is difficult. It is difficult. I would say, look, we in, in in 15 years or so, we had about six winners. And that's wonderful. We said, name six European leaders over the last 15 years who deserve the prize. And it's difficult. They cannot do it. Uh, so it is, it is, this is not a pension. You know, it's not an automatic pension. It is a prize for 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 excellence in leadership and I'm not a member, by the way, in the prize committee. I don't have a vote. I don't know what they do even there because it is a closed meeting which has no minutes, actually. And uh, we have wonderful people in that uh, 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 board of committee, very respectable people. All the names, of course, are on our website. And uh, they make the decision and uh, which the board of the foundation then honor and 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 execute uh, so but it uh, we are not going to lower our standards you know because we are africans we're going to keep our standards and we're going to keep our uh, integrity and uh, we'll put out those wonderful leaders when we find them so more in um your report um, says that uh, the 2020 Mo Ibrahim Foundation report says in 2019, 
61.2% of African population lives in a country where overall governance is better than in 2010. So when you look back more um, with the recipients that you've had, what's your assessment? Has the prize had the desired result? It's difficult to know, to be honest. It's difficult to know. Uh, it's definitely uh, managed to bring to the world stage uh, uh, some African leaders who are defending Africa interests. Africa has a very low voice, if any, in the international arena. Nobody listens to Africa, frankly. And we need some people with uh, credibility to be able there and take our voice out there. We need role models for our kids. But this is a process takes time. And I guess it's not in our generation, maybe in the next generation, people can look back and see what was the effect of that. We hope it is, it has been effective. Mo, let me take you back to um, 1989, um, when you founded uh, uh, MSI, uh, Mobile Systems International, becoming, I think, the you know, uh, uh, leading cellular consulting and software provider. What was the strategic thinking? Because when I was looking at that, I was like, wow, 1989? More was already thinking in this mold. Talk to me about the strategic positioning and the thinking uh, for MSI, MSI. Right. I'm going to be very honest with you. There is no strategic thinking. There's nothing there. Uh, <laughs> I, I was an academic. And I happened to specialize in the field of uh, mobile communications. That was before cellular. And I developed the technology and I developed models of how to uh, provide proper cellular coverage, etc. I was a radio engineer. And many of these became standard uh, technology, etc. Then in 83, British Telecom got a license to uh, uh, develop uh, the first cellular network in UK. They got two licenses, they got one, and Vodafone uh, got one. And uh, uh, BT then contacted me and said, look, you can come here as a technical director and design this network. Uh, for an engineer, that is wonderful to have a big training, you know, trend set to play with. We engineers like to play with trend sets. And uh, so I left you know, my research work at university and I came to London, I was at Birmingham at the time, and uh, <laughs> designed the first UK mobile network. And I designed the first hand-portable-based mobile network. And that was a great achievement because, I don't know, many people would know, Spiller was basically meant for cars, not for people. Mm -hmm. And we tried to make it for people by taking the phone out of the car and use hand portables, which people can carry on them. It became personal communication instead of automobile communication. That's why it's called mobile, because mobile is American word for automobiles. Anyway, uh, so I did work in this big company, Bridgestone. It's a huge company. And frankly, I, 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 I was, I, I, I'm trying to use my words carefully here. 
<laughs> but I, I was, it was not a very happy environment because uh, nothing personal. I was treated very well. I was given promotions, bonuses, etc. But the whole attitude of the company was was extremely backward. It is basic telephony company. Those mobile phone as a small little thing, and we had a lot of issues there. How to get the company to pay attention to this technology, and uh, so came a time I said I, I I really don't like the culture of these big companies, and I don't work want to work there anymore. Uh, what do you do when you are a, a techie and you decide you don't want to be employed? I went home and said, okay, you know, I said to my wife, then, you know, I'll this dining room in our apartment, I'm going to use it as an office. Forget about the dining room. I'm I'm going to be a consultant because that, what do you do when, when, when you resign? And uh, so I started to work as a consultant. And immediately uh, I found... A lot of work, you know, Financial Times wrote some article at the time. They said, oh, more left uh, BT, and that was going to maybe a problem for BT, how they're going to do the new uh, GSM system, the digital new technology was coming in 1989. And uh, so I got all contact from Japanese, American, Swedish. Can you come and do help me? So I started to work. And then I find that I am booked every day for the next three years. Wow. Uh, I handle this. Uh, so I said, I need to get some people to help me. So uh, that's how it started. You know, then I recruited four people. By the end of the year, I had 11. These were top engineers. And uh, then we ended up really building half the networks in Europe. Wow. Uh, we did Moscow, we did Singapore, we did China, we did, um, you know, Malaysia, we did Australia, we did New US, we did, and suddenly we became a huge company. And I said, what is going on here? Uh, <laughs> and and now you, you had started from your lounge, tend your I, lounge. Well, I didn't have a lounge. Starting from my dining, you know, my dining table. Wow. Uh, and then uh, it just grew, and I had to manage this because I'm not a businessman. I was never a businessman. And suddenly, I'm an engineer. And suddenly, we had this growing big company writing software. Everybody liked it, and everybody wanted to use it. So I had to license our software. And we really grow too fast. And uh, I had to learn as we go. But then I discovered, really, uh, management uh, is not that complicated art, you know, which is to teach you at business schools. And all what you need is just to listen to people and uh, to trust good people. Try to recruit people who are better than you. You know, mm. that, that's what you should do. And you listen. And then you make decision and you go forward. And... Uh, that we did. Another, something very important also we did at that time, which was very early on. I said everybody in the company is a shareholder. So yeah. we gave shares to everybody in the company. When we sold the company uh, for almost a billion dollars a few years later, uh, we created about 50 millionaires 
because yeah, over 33% of the shares was in the hand of my employees, not management, employees. And uh, my my view was, this is the people who are doing the work. If we succeed, we must share in that success. Mm-hmm. And uh, that actually proved to be, I mean, it, because of that, we grew to be a big company. So you so, you sold MSI to Maconi company, um, and you, you made uh, the, n- the number of millionaires that you're talking about. And then 1998, you founded Celtel International. Again, was this strategy there, or this is another um, lounge dining room kind of thing? That was uh, very interestingly. It was not as much a business decision as a heart a decision hit by the heart, really. Uh-huh. Uh, because what happened is that we were working as a consultancy company designed with it for key. Uh, design contracts, design the whole radio networks. We worked everywhere. I told you half the mobile networks in Europe, we did it. We did Germany, we did Sweden, we did Finland, we did Denmark, we did uh, France, we did Spain, we, we, we did everywhere, except Africa. And we say, why why people don't want to go and do networks in Africa? And uh, I I spoke to some of our uh, friends because we used to work with the CEOs of all these telephone companies. And I recall one of the uh, uh, leaders of, of one of the bell companies who were a customer of ours. And I said, look, we got a message from Uganda. They need to build a cellular network. And they are not charging expensive fees or anything. I mean, why did you go and do it? And he said to me, oh, Mo, do you want me to go and tell my board I'm going to go and invest in a country run by Aide Amin? And I said, excuse me, Aide Amin left 10 years ago. <laughs> he said, really? <laughs> wow. He said, look, I'm the most sophisticated guy in our board. <laughs> you know, I was a hippie when I was a young man. You know, I, and if I don't know that I mean left, what do you think my board will think? Wow. So, so there is total ignorance about Africa. People love Africa as a sum of, of failed countries run by dictators and and, and thieves and, and, and there's no way to do clean business. So nobody wants to go and do things in Africa. So we said, look, guys, at the end, it has to be Africans who go and build Africa. Okay, let's go and do it. And most of the people said, Mo, you are crazy. Look, you you had a good run. Get your money now. Go to Barbados or some Caribbean islands. Enjoy life. Have your cocktail on the beach. And, and don't go and waste your money in Africa. And I said, why? You know, why you guys think it's wasting money? Oh, there will be corruption. There will be... I said, no, no, corruption. We, we, we can fight corruption. We can stop corruption. Anyway, uh, at the end, as I said, it was a decision from the heart, more than mm. more than the head, uh, is that I believe Africa is much better that, than that perception. And if that is true, if there's a gap between reality and perception, then there must be a good business there. 
Yeah. To tell me more, as you, when you look back, I mean, you made a lot of money, um, but talk to me, did you find some of those stereotypes to be true in your experience? What was the frustrations that you experienced running Celta like all across the, uh, the, the, the continent? I mean, if it, when you sold more, you had 24 million subscribers in 14 African countries. What, what was the low for you and what was the high for you as far as running Celtel was concerned? Right. The problem actually was that was regulators because telecom has always been a government business and telecom companies has been there in Africa for very long, for many years. And most of them were hugely bureaucratic. Uh, they never collect uh, 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 their money from customers. Most of the customers are government departments and they don't pay. And they have no money to invest, but they're happy just to be there. It is an important state institution. So it is there, it will not go away. But they're not doing anything. When we went to Africa, those countries like DRC, 60 million people and there's only 3,000 fixed lines. Only 3,000 fixed lines. Aside from South Africa, Egypt, maybe Morocco, there was nothing. A huge continent which is not connected. So that was obvious uh, a place to, uh, to, to boot this network. So African countries and governments <clears throat> issued licenses. And then they need a regulator. So mm. once you go to the telecom company and pick up one of the senior managers to make him a regulator. Uh, the regulator treats you as some foreign thieves who are coming to destroy his company and that is pension. And it's very difficult to explain, yeah. you know, to say, no, you have, you have to create a level playing field. Look at all the interconnected agreements everywhere in Europe, everywhere in the world. Here they are. You choose the one you like. And uh, so people were inexperienced. And uh, they have that uh, little bias. I'll give you a, a good example. Yeah. We were operating in Congo and in DRC. Okay. So we have mobile networks in the two countries. We have international gateway in both countries, which means we can take the traffic to put it out everywhere in the world. And we noticed <clears throat> that. If you want, if you were in, 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 you know, one capital, you want to speak, if you're in Brazzaville, trying to speak to a guy in Kinshasa, which across yeah. the river, just across the river. You know, if you look carefully, you can see the other guy, actually. <laughs> uh, you know, this call will have to go to Belgium and then go to France and then come to Brazzaville. Wow. And it costs about seven or eight dollars a minute. So we talked to the regulator and said, look, guys, this, this is not right. We can put connected to do carry that, we can just put a shot across the river. And that reduces the connectivity time. It reduces the cost hugely. You don't need to send. And uh, no, they said no. Why? Don't I have 
I have international gateway. I can put the traffic anywhere. Why can I put it to your next neighbor? No, you cannot do that. It took us one year to argue with regulator that is the best for your people to connect them directly. Why you have to go through your old colonial masters? Uh, then at the end, they did it, allowed us to do it. And you know what? What, what was the main reason, uh, uh, Mo? Why were they refusing? Were they not just getting the sense or what? Exactly. I could not understand why. Uh, yeah. Somebody says security. Somebody says, oh, why you need to connect there? I don't know. Uh, was there some hanky-banky there? I don't know. But they love to send the traffic all over the world to come back. And we could not understand, uh, really. Uh, anyway, after one year, we were given the green light and we did it. Within one week, the traffic between the two capitals increased 60 times, 64. Wow. Wow. 64. That's 6,000 percent. The cost went from eight dollars to like 30 cents, 30 cents. And we say, is that not better for your people? 30 cents instead of eight dollars per minute. I mean, is that not better for your people? See the amount of traffic generated now. Why are we African afraid to talk to each other? Yeah. Uh, so this is the kind of frustrations uh, 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 you, you, you have with people. Uh, mm. And the most exciting part of it, I mean, what, what, what was your high? The, I mean, apart from selling and making $4 billion, what was the high for you? Our, our high was the, the, the unexpected, unprecedented success that we, we could not imagine how people took to mobile telephony. It filled needs, which actually we did not even realize it was there. And the traffic was growing. I mean, it almost killed us because our graphic, you know, I have to double the network every year. The growth over 100% every year. Imagine the amount of work we had to do to double our infrastructure every year uh, to, meet, to meet the demand. That was amazing. And then it created a huge number of entrepreneurs. I, I imagine, I mean, I, I'll tell you a story. One day I was sitting with my managers and I said, look guys, I'm preparing a report here to the uh, board uh, because the board always asked us, and that's very interesting, that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. okay. We defined our stakeholders as the following. Mm -hmm. The shareholders, the employees, our customers, and the community. And we need to report to the board what have we achieved to every one of these categories. It's not just the shareholders. Notice, only now, 20 years later, people start to talk about corporate governance and, 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 and social responsibility. That was yeah. So I said, okay, I need to know what have we achieved for our community as I'm providing a service. That's fine. That's our job. But what have we done? And uh, we say, okay, how much employment we created? And uh, the head of HR say, oh, we have six, seven, seven thousand employees. We have seven thousand well-paid jobs, etc. Then the marketing guy turned to me and said, "Forget about this guy. 
that's not this is nothing he say we have 400,000 points of sale mm. what is this 400,000 points of sale because we sell through scratch cards so somebody will come and say okay I want to sell he has a small kiosk somewhere he gets to the card and get a good percentage on this and he starts a business and next day he'll have some oranges some bananas the next day he have some coke and some then suddenly he has a full flying job then he has a supermarket you know how he say I have 400,000 of those guys wow wow this entrepreneurs who came and then the engineer guy said oh you know what we have I don't know like 10,000 towers they start all over the continent and every day somebody need to go check the batteries and the generators will need diesel and all this is subcontracted how many subcontracts we have in 14 countries to be able to go and do all this kind of work then it is that rebel through effect of job creation entrepreneurship you know people who's being created out of the company that for me was was a surprise because i haven't even thought about it i said my god wow so i ran to the boy and say hey guys you don't know what's going on here and that was a high yeah that now tell me tell me um more as you sit there when you look at what mobile telephony has done two things do you regret having sold to Zane at all? Point number one. Point number two, is this what you thought mobile telephony would do, the impact that it has had on society right now? Those two questions more. Right. About the regretting of doing the soul, there are always two arguments here. Uh, <laughs> like I, the reason we end up selling the, the, the company was, first, I had a number of shareholders our company, by the way, was always financed by equity, not debt, because banks will not lend to African companies. Mm. We were one of the best government companies. We had total transparency. I have only one board. I am I am the founder. I'm the largest, very the very much largest shareholder in the company in the board of 14. I have only one thing. <laughs> all the other shareholders even you know they have two percent three percent they all have boarded the seat and we say right that's how we run the company fine if you don't like me you can fire me because i have only one vote and uh but you see what what uh, uh, nevertheless banks up to that stage have two problems one in 2000 was the uh dot com bust which yeah. actually the telecom bust and so banks had a problem with telecom companies in general secondly we're africans but yeah so don't touch don't touch africa all these great banks so we had to fund the company always by raising funds my cfo has one job only every nine months he will have a round of finance and uh, it was really tough wow. uh, uh, yeah 
of course our has, has that changed more has that changed the 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 the, the, the negative look at african businesses um and, and 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 mobile and mobile telephony it changed it changed and yeah. our scene was one of the key factors which changed that because okay. suddenly said, oh this company is worth 3.4 billion dollars at the time oh what happens here and then people start to because banks research they don't have research reports about african companies and uh, this total ignorance is dark place there mm. no one's mm. going to africa they hear stories about africa and their perception about africa so we have a problem actually a problem of of image uh, and perception of, of of our continent so our our sale helped really dispel some uh, and that re-rated all the telecom companies in in africa it become much easier now and all the guys there working in telecom are finding much easier to raise uh, funds so things are improving uh the second thing really i really wanted to do the foundation work i see uh, yes because you know we had a lot of discussion about ourselves i remember uh salim ahmed salim who is uh uh, uh so rest in peace what an amazing man he's a wonderful man yes and uh he was deputy chair at the time and we're talking a lot about africa we had a number of people in the book and we say look we really need to do this governance thing in africa because running around in africa we, we realize really that this should be should be different should, it can be different and it just need to run in a better way and uh, so I had that desire as well. Some of our shareholders also uh, who came, we had people like the IFC, we had CDC, we had FMO, we had a number of people, and also some funds, uh, private equity guys. Those guys realized they're sitting in a huge profit action. Mm. Uh, and funds want to exit after four or five years also the bonuses and to balance things i mean i mean without mentioning name i mean one big fund actually came to me and said mo we are so grateful we made seven investments in africa six of them failed but your investment covered not only this failure covered our failure anywhere and wow we are were so grateful that's why really please sell you know <laughs> You know, anyway, as the end, I, I, I abstained. I did not vote on the decision uh, whether to list the company or sell it. I said, I respect all the investors and employees. What do you guys want? Mm. Uh, so uh, I will always have the doubt was the best decision or not, but it just happened. And anyway, it enabled me to have another life. Every decade or so, we have a different life forever. Imagine getting free access to the Newsday, the Standard, the Zimbabwe Independent, and the Weekly Digest for a full month. Well, you can, and all you need to do is download the Newsday e-reader app on Google Play Store or scan the Newsday QR code in any of the AMH print publications and start enjoying the quality content. Paper. 
So, Mo, you were born in Sudan, um, 3rd of May, 1946. You grew up in Egypt. Talk to me more about um, the biggest influence in your life. What is the thing that influenced you growing up in Sudan, growing up in, in, in Egypt? Was it your, the way you were brought up? Uh, what experiences formed and shaped who Mo has become? Right. Uh, I come from uh, Nubia, uh, which is in struggling North Sudan and Southern Egypt. I come from the North Sudan part of Nubia. The Nubian is a very old race in Africa. Uh, they have the old language, the old music, etc. And uh, culture. And, and uh, when we were in Alexandria as a child, the Nubian community there was also very, uh, very coherent, uh, very, you know, every evening people will visit each other and uh, it's open houses, it is mingling, it is uh, support, etc. You grow into this community, which is extremely supportive of each other. And uh, we were poor, not, not hungry poor but mm. managing mm. and the consensus was education education is the way out of this if you want to be better than your parents you have to go to school and excel in school and i recall the Libyan community managed to collect some money and build uh, some schools they built, uh, 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 what you called it, uh, an elementary school and also a secondary school. And it was called the Nubian Renaissance Schools. Wonderful Nubian Renaissance Schools. Yeah. Which has really excellent education. And uh, these two things helped a lot. The emphasis on education. Education is is important. Uh, secondly, is the community spirit of we can get things done if we are together, and uh, we should understand in absence of any social uh, safety nets, people have to support each other, and uh, that always lived with me that we really have to take care of others as well. We are a large human family, and uh, that's important. Tell me, what, what, what's the biggest influence that your, your father, Fatih, and your mother, Aida, had on you? What's the biggest influence that the, these two had on you? Yeah, my mother really was a, a force uh, championing education not only in my immediate family, but in this huge extended family of Nubians. And uh, she will check on every kid. You, you didn't go to school today. What this kid is doing? Who is scoring what? And there's all some tendency sometimes for the father to say, look, this boy is 14 years old now. Now he should come and do some work to help the yeah. family. No, he has to go to school. You guys sort it out. Don't take kids from school to help you uh, 
think of tomorrow, not today. So she she was really the driving force, uh, you know, as for us, all of us, uh, as far as education. Uh, my father was a, a man of a huge heart. And, mm. uh, that also affected me quite a lot. Um, uh, he will take care. He will take care regardless. Good people, bad people, whatever, need help. Whatever you can do to help uh, people. And this integrity was, was really important. And uh, you discover that really the honor of the poor and the compassion of the poor to each other is amazing. Wow. Is um, that, 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 that to me looks like more explains why you have been so drawn to philanthropy. Uh, you've already said that one of the reasons that made you sell, uh, sell tell to, to Zane was because you wanted to do the foundation work. So that's where the philanthropy, the giving, the caring comes from. Probably, probably. Mm -hmm. We have been brought up, you know, to look after our, uh, you know, why, why, why can we help? And I'm uh, from early age, you know, after I had my first job, after I graduated as an engineer, uh, my uncle died. He has four kids or something. First call from my father. I was in Khartoum at the time. He was an anxiety. I said, okay, you are the father of these kids now. You go and sort it out. And from my first salary in my job, I have to really cut out and make sure these kids go to school. And, you know, it is... I, I, it is ingrained in you as you, you are part of this extended family. You cannot eat when somebody else is hungry. It's not acceptable. Yeah, yeah. Mo, you've been very successful. You've received uh, honorary doctorates. You've received uh, a, num a number of awards. But I, I want to um, uh, ask you, have you ever failed at something? And if you've had, what lessons did uh, failure teach you? Yeah, I, I, I fell in a lot of things. I'm not invincible. Yesterday, I was failed. It was a weekend. I was playing golf, and I lost. <laughs> Every day, I, I have some failures. And failures remind you, you are human, you know? And and it's welcome. Welcome to yeah. failure. and Welcome to success. That's life. Mo, I know that um, uh, as we round up, two things that you're very passionate about. Um, COP27 has just ended. Um, what you've made a statement, what is the world, what, what, the, what is the world supposed to be doing as far as the responsibilities, the burden that is being placed on Africa as far as uh, climate, is, climate change is, is concerned? Trevor, if you are serious about climate, the only way to sort the problem out is carbon pricing. Now, everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. But you won't do it. That is a problem. That is, and that is a failure of leadership. We have politicians. We don't have statesmen, unfortunately. We have people who want to be elected next year or the year after, who want to win at midterm or the full, whatever it is. That is the main objective. But Long term, what's going to happen to our kids or our grand? Well, who knows? 
maybe Microsoft find some piece of software which sort out the carbon. I come on, guys. Be be mm. this. Look, the easy solution for this is simple. Now, in order to maintain one and a half degrees, right? That's the objective. Yeah. Which, which we will try to retreat from now. But that's the objective. You know what? If we limit everybody, everybody in this world to let's say three three tons a year of emission, we are there. Mm. Okay. Now why are we not doing why are we not doing it tomorrow? I'll tell you why. Because if we agree that, if we agree that all human beings are equal, and we just share this 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 resource around us in an equitable manner, then if an American, average American, emits 15 tons a year, European seven, Chinese seven, Africans half, here is a simple equation, create incentive to everybody. You emit seven tons a year, that's four tons above the three permissible amount of emission you should do. Multiply that by your population, multiply that by a price of ton of 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 coal this is what you need to pay in that climate fund you in africa you emit half a ton we owe you two and a half ton multiply two and a half ton with the population with the price of of coal here is the money for you what this happens the guys who the guys who are emitting they have to pay for the consumption the guy who are not emitting receive money to help them to adapt and to mitigate and to move forward yeah. that's the way to do it but at the moment is a charity look you are rich guys please give us some money and this rich guy says, oh yeah okay i'll give you some money we're 100 billion dollars a year enough yeah okay maybe that's enough but then, oh, you know what? We have COVID this year. I cannot do it. Uh, maybe next year. And so they have been talking about that for three years and it's not come yet because they think of it as a charity. Excuse me. It's not charity. It is price consumption. And if people price coal, uh, price emission, then people will behave. The guys who pay a lot of money want to reduce it. So they're going to ensure to try to reduce it. The guy who are not emitting, they try to stay green. That's a great incentive for us in Africa to maintain our forest, our renewable, etc. Look, we talk about the, the the Amazon, yeah, the Congo Basin. Now, this is a huge carbon sink. So everybody said the world, hey guys, don't touch it, don't touch it because we need it. We need to breathe. Okay, fine, pay for it. Yeah, why I pay for it? If it's a global good, everybody should pay for it. Then I'll stop, you know, cutting trees and uh, trying to dig for oil or to look for pay for it. And the only way to pay for it is if there's a carbon price. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that, Trevor. But it's, it's unfortunate that where we are, this is the failure of our politicians in the rich countries, unfortunately. 
looks like we're going to be here for a long time more as far as that is concerned, because this le- uh, failure of leadership is preponderant. <laughs> it, is, it, it is a problem. It is a problem. And yeah. uh, we just have to keep pushing and we have to explain to people why they need to price carbon. Because I don't find any other solution. Mm, absolutely. Let me let me before I ask you about books now. I'll I'll ask you the question that we started talking about as we were getting ready. Um, what is easy to do, making money or giving money away? I, I that my side found a little bit silly, but really giving away money is good because you have to make choices, and sometimes these choices can be very painful to Look. Yeah. I get a message from somebody saying, look, I need a kidney replacement. It's going to cost so much money. Can you do this? Or somebody wants to study, I need to pay the fees. And also, which, which choice to make? Wow. What a choice to make. You plan to play God or what? What is this? It's mm. really good. And then it's also more difficult if we choose to put our money in uh, really, in, 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 uh, uh, as activists in, in, in you know, trying to promote governance and leadership against humanitarian efforts, uh, is tough. Mm. Because with immediate need, somebody got floods here, they lost their house, they need help. But we're trying this long term project, which it, it hasn't got the same human immediately, uh, immediate touch as helping somebody who is ill or lost, you know, a leg or whatever. Uh, it is tough decisions and uh, you really need uh, somehow to navigate through it. viewers more who are all over the world love books and i thought we would take uh, two minutes more for you to share with us uh, any books that you've read more that have had a huge impact uh, on on your life please right i uh, recently i liked the book by uh, minush uh, shafiq who mm. used, used to be uh, uh, a director at the uh, i think the imf and used to be Deputy Governor here at Bank of England. She's now Director of London School of Economics, uh, which is what we owe each other. It's about a new social contract. It's a very interesting book. It's looking at what had changed. But how are we going to move forward? We need a new social contract, uh, uh, which I think is really, uh, uh, really interesting uh, book. Uh, I just received a book from Bono. And uh, I have not read it yet, but interesting to see what he has to say. He's a friend of ours, a friend of Africa. I also look forward to see uh, what what he's saying. Fantastic. You know, you were talking as we end more. One thing that you do very well, uh, we were together in Tunis for your uh, annual meeting. Um, And I think in, um, uh, I can't remember, is it Dakar? Um, We've been to Mauritius. Um, you're doing a wonderful job. I mean, in a way, for lack of a better word, that's our own little Davos. Is that how? Is that your thinking? Yes, 
is uh, is our Davos, but it's more honest. Uh, mm. uh, we don't sell speakers uh, slots. We don't charge money even for attendance, and uh, we also speak honestly. And that's the difference between us and Davos. So we, we, we I'm not sure we describe ourselves as Davos. We tell us it's an African government. Uh, you know, we African do things differently. Absolutely, and I've I've thoroughly enjoyed being part of those uh, summits. You know, the music and so forth, and also. Uh, you, you, you. There's something about you more that people might not know. Is that you? Are, you are very candid. You are forthright. You speak your mind, uh, which is why I was looking forward to this conversation. So thank you so much for creating the time. I'm happy I finally pinned you down. Um, thank you so much, Mo. Thank you, and I wait to see you then in Nairobi for our next event. Fantastic, Mo. Remain sitting where you are. Allow me now to direct myself to our viewers more who are all over the world who follow this conversation uh, every week. We are out on YouTube, 7 a.m. Central African time. To make sure that you don't miss out on any of these quality conversations, I invite you to press on this red button here and subscribe, share, and like. We've created a podcast platform for your listening pleasure. If you scroll down this uh, video and go to our website, you'll find our uh, podcast for all our conversations for your listening pleasure. Until next time, cheers to you all.